Hello and welcome to episode 82 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Oleggi. And I'm Peter Lim. And it is our great, great pleasure to welcome today Dennis Goldberg to the podcast. Uh, Dennis is a lifelong activist who fought for freedom and democracy in South Africa, was born in Cape Town in 1933, uh, entered university at the tender age of 16 in the civil engineering program at the University of Cape Town uh, before joining the Congress of Democrats, the Communist Party, and eventually becoming a regional commander and a member of the high command of Umkonto Wesizwe, the armed wing of the African National Congress, or ANC. He went underground after the Sharpeville massacre and was arrested along with many other members of the ANC and Umkonto Wesizwe in the Rivonia raid at Lilisleaf Farm in 1963 and was one of the Rivonia trialists, uh, a trial that is remembered for the famous statement from the dock uh, of Nelson Mandela. And the sentence was handed down 50 years ago. For Dennis Goldberg, it was four life sentences. Uh, he served 22 years in prison uh, as the only white man convicted at that Rivonia trial. He was separated, segregated from the black uh, prisoners like Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, Ahmed Katrada, and others. And Dennis was sent to uh, a prison in Pretoria. He was eventually released in 1985 and served as an ANC representative in London uh, until 1994, when the first democratic elections took place in South Africa. After that, he developed a social upliftment uh, project called Community Heart and also worked with the Ministry of uh, Water and, and Forestry in South Africa. So it's our great, great privilege and honor to welcome Dennis to the podcast. Nice to be here. Well, this year, very sadly, we lost Nelson Mandela, Madiba. Uh, and as Peter just mentioned, you were sentenced with him at the Rivonia trial. Your thoughts on Madiba, uh, Rivonia, and, and his legacy? Complex question. Sadly, the greatness of Nelson Mandela is usually overlooked in the praise of Nelson Mandela, almost like a holy figure who single-handedly brought freedom to South Africa. And this does harm to his reputation and the greatness of his leadership, but the greatness of his leadership together with others like Oliver Tambo, who in fact led us to freedom in all the years that Nelson Mandela and the rest of us were in prison. Nevertheless, Nelson was a great leader, and I had a discussion with him once about this, that he needed to be more in touch with people. He was becoming remote. And we ended up after quite a hefty discussion where he said he's elected leader, he will lead. And I said, yes, but it needs to be collegial. And the role of a leader is that during the course of the struggle, New situations are created by the struggle itself and the reactions of the uh, regime. Then it needs new ideas. And that was his brilliance of finding the way forward. And the same with Oliver Tambo. And collectively, their brotherhood in arms 
and their brotherhood as the first black legal practice in Johannesburg uh, was something absolutely remarkable for the lack of egoism in it from both sides. Uh, I would say go to my lecture delivered at Glasgow on uh, Mandela, Tambo, lecture, their uh, legacy. Uh, it's pretty good speech, I must tell you. And uh, it sets this out in full. So I don't want to go more except to say his legacy is not just an answer to the question, did prison change him? What prison did was to intensify his eventual belief in South Africa as a non with a non-racial future. He started off as a very narrow African nationalist, opposed to all others, especially whites, and especially white communists, and then came to understand that from their African claims document of 1943, that there was a need to, if you're going to be equal, then you can't just throw everybody into the sea. You have to create the conditions for equality. And what prison did was to intensify the need to carry through that policy of the Freedom Charter. South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white together. An ideal for which he said in that famous speech in the dock that he was prepared to die for this. If need be. Well, the need be was added by George Bezos to give the judge a bit of manoeuvring space. But nevertheless, it was a challenge to white South Africa and the judge. Hang me if you dare, hang Walter, hang Dennis, hang Govan, hang Cathy, hang all of us. And it was a remarkable moment. The point I'm making is that there's an utter consistency in his own trial, uh, when he was sentenced to five years of imprisonment, to having uh, previously been the volunteer-in-chief for the Freedom Charter. When he was underground, they called him the Black Pimpernel. We seek him here, we seek him there, we seek him everywhere. And he became famous at that period. But his speech from the dock not only made him famous, through the activity of Oliver Tambo and the ANC exile leadership, but it intensified this line of thinking that had been developing within the ANC, had been enshrined in the Freedom Charter. Nelson Mandela's speech from the dock reinforced that. And when he came out of prison, he held it high. Even though Winnie Mandela and others were saying, in effect, to hell with the whites, we're going to kill them all because of the bitterness of the struggle and the violence of the resistance of the apartheid regime. And to hold fast to these ideas was really the ANC's lodestone, the Freedom Charter. And just, by the way, Tabo and Becky, who led the discussions with Afrikaner intellectuals in uh, Sierra Leone, then uh, in Dakar, and then in Ghana, in Accra, in a square, is attacked by Ghanaian uh, journalists to say, how dare you bring the white enemy to our country? 
And Thabo could have taken the easy way out of Pan-Africanism, Africa for the Africans. And he said, you have your policies, we have ours, and ours is the Freedom Charter. These are our future citizens who, with whom we will work because they want to see change. And that takes political courage when you're isolated, you know. So the legacy, non-racism, the legacy, mass mobilization, the danger of Madiba as Saint Madiba single-handedly bringing freedom is that it demobilizes our people. And if you're demobilized, you wait and you sit and you wait for a new liberator. You need figures. You need people who make things popular and understandable. But it's finding the right strategy that mobilizes people. A million two hundred thousand in the United Democratic Front who followed ANC policies, who, was, who were visiting the ANC leadership in Lusaka to coordinate their activity, to f tread a fine line in the Cold War between East and West, to uphold these attitudes and not be dominated by either side. These are the greatness of the leadership of Mandela, Tambo, and Zo, and many others. And that mobilizing must have uh, impressed you in the 50s when you came into uh, prominent activity, that, uh, the defiance campaign, the, uh, uh, the 50s. Could you speak a little bit to how you yourself became involved? Well, I became involved as a young man, just finishing off my degree uh, in civil engineering, uh, met a young woman who was already involved in the Modern Youth Society, which was an offshoot of a university left group called Modern World Society. And the university would not allow other than students on campus. And for funding for the Modern World Society was only for students. And so they set up the Modern Youth Society. It did night schools for workers in the harbour of South Africa in Cape Town. It uh, used the Guardian newspaper uh, as the teaching material for learning to read and write. We were far ahead of Paulo Freire, I have to say. <laughs> and uh, um, when I joined, they were very active, and I became very active very quickly. Because here, at last, I was meeting with young people who shared my ideas. I was no longer isolated uh, in a minority of one in just about every school class or university class I was in. And it was such a relief and such a delight. And there we learned to organize. There we drew in George Peake, a colored building worker who became an uh, active member of the Building Workers Union. We drew in Andimba Toivu Yatoivu, uh, who praises my wife and I. He doesn't call us white, he calls us intellectuals, <laughs> a euphemism, uh, to Modern Youth Society, where he discovered for the first time that there are people who treat black people as equals, without any patronage. He became a leader, you know, he a founder of SWAPO. Yeah and a founder of PLAN, PL, you know, the People's Liberation Army of Namibia. What a guy, what work we did. 
a little group of whites in a non-racial organization, always under attack from the Transvaal Indian Youth Congress, Kothrada and others, because we weren't in the pattern of the Congress Alliance or the separate outfits at a time when we talked of multiracial future and we were already talking of a non-racial future and we won <laughs> in the end. Um, but it was an interesting conflict and the need to organize and we took part in ANC campaigns. Uh, we, but we wanted to be able to get to youth. There wasn't an ANC Youth League in Cape Town at the time or if it was, it was pretty moribund. Later, Chris Harney was expelled from Fort Hare University and the youth became very active and we worked with them. But as Congress, no longer modern youth society, it faded out after a time. Ben Turok was there, Mary, uh, Mary Turok. Ben Turok, one of the longest serving members of parliament in South Africa. So, you know, we did pretty good work. And, and listeners can uh, trace this in Dennis's excellent book, The Mission, and the a preface is written by Paolo Jordan, who I think joined that early uh, society in Cape Town. Yes, he did. Yeah. He's one of our great historians of our movement, uh, Paolo Jordan. He now likes to go as really dingo, Paolo Jordan. And uh, I understand the need for acknowledgement of one's roots. Um, and I'm quite close to Palo, I have to say, to this day, in a not uncritical relationship between the two of us. And it's so refreshing to be able to talk really as equals. Uh, he does have to respect me. I'm a lot older than him, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a good relationship. Thanks for mentioning that. In your memoir and also in your talk at the African Studies Center here at Michigan State yesterday, you talked about your family background and reflected on the inspiration behind your lifelong belief and commitment to non-racialism and equality. Can you share with the listeners um, a little bit more about this, the, the, the role of your parents in particular, um, you mentioned the Spanish Civil War being a major influence and the kind of conversations that were had over supper at, at your house and how uh, your father and, and, and your mother uh, really shaped your ideas. Because it, it, one of the greatest quotes, and I think this may have been in the classroom that you visited uh, uh, with me, um, you said it was great to be in prison with my mom at one point. Uh, you know, what a great badge of honor and, and what a wonderful memory. So I think it would be wonderful for the listeners to, to really hear you reflect on this a little bit. You know, I was born in 1933, uh, Depression year, the year that Adolf Hitler came to power. There was a worldwide anti-fascist movement my father was a, a British sailor. He was a shop steward. He was an organizer. He'd been, uh, he was uh, on the Australian coast, couldn't get a, a ship home because of his organizing, a strike of seamen. 
eventually was stowed away by trade union members from Brisbane to Melbourne where he was able to get a ride home to England, so to speak, and arrives in the pool of London and the union secretary is standing there in a rowing boat saying, Sam, bring him out, we're on strike. And he did, uh, because that's what you did. And I grew up with this knowledge. My mother worked in a clothing factory with heavy old machines. She had a bit more schooling than my dad. I, my dad had six years. I have a photograph of my mother in a gym slip. Uh, so she, and she looks about 18. So, um, but it wasn't the formal education. My dad was a self-educated person and tremendously well-read, really and truly, and certainly a Marxist theoretician. And later when I became politically active and met my black comrades in the ANC and Communist Party, uh, they said, well, they knew about me because of my parents, and they learned their politics from my dad. But in my home, people of all races came to visit and had to be treated with respect. In the 30s were, 1930s were hunger years, and yet somehow there was always something in the pot. My mum was a magician. Uh, my brother and I would get bread and gravy, or bread and dripping, and if there were little bits of onion fried into the fat from the cooked meat. Oh, man, that was paradise. I don't ever remember going hungry, but I know that the visitor had to get the last potato, not me, because the visitor had to be treated with respect. And visitors who were ordinary workers in their heavy, filthy clothes couldn't go home first. Uh, and then professors and... Uh, intellectual people, and they all met in my parents' home, and I met them too. It was normal. Just to give an example, in 1943, the year of the turning point of the war, there's a black worker sitting on a sidewalk, sitting on the curbstone, and he's eating his lunch. He's taken a small French loaf, a baguette, he's poured a tin of sardines into it, he squeezed it together so that the olive oil wouldn't run out, and he's munching away. And I'm thinking, those are my favorite brand of sardines. Why can't I sit there, arms akimbo, mouth open, chewing? Because <laughs> I had to sit at a table with my mouth closed. You know, we had to be polite. And along comes a white man, a middle-aged man, and shouts at this working guy and says, you filthy black, you make the street dirty with your food. And this man stood up quite slowly, gathering himself, and said, do not call me a filthy black. I am a respectable native citizen. And the white man scuttled away. Interestingly, of course, black is now the preferred term, and native citizen is a term of abuse in South Africa. But the courage of the man, uh, it happened in 1943, uh, what are we talking, 71 years ago, 
and I can remember clearly, especially, how quickly he sat down because the adrenaline must have been pumping and his knees were shaking. But the courage it took for his dignity, it made a tremendous... There were other incidents of a similar kind. Uh, so what I was hearing in my house was important. But my first teacher at school, Miss Cook, I was six-year-old and she was gorgeous. I was so in love with Miss Cook. And she taught us about prejudice. Her watch disappeared out of her desk, and we all blamed Nolan, who had a hair lip and cleft palate, spoke funny, wore dirty clothes, uh, was a poor white kid, and he was isolated from the class because he was different. And as one, 30 kids blamed Nolan, who couldn't have been guilty of stealing the watch. And she took us through a cross-examination until she got us to understand the nature of prejudice. And it was a lesson my parents were teaching me. And I must say, I have never gone to look for Miss Cook afterwards. Because I have a fear that she was so beautiful and so wonderful and taught me so much. Maybe she turned into an apartheid witch and then I'd be so disillusioned. I must tell you, she had a lovely perfume that she always wore. And when I was 18, I found out what it was, but not from Miss Cook. <laughs> <laughs> and if we could uh, then take these stories of, of courage and of hardship uh, forward to the time that you were incarcerated in, in Pretoria. You were one of the few... Uh, white political prisoners and in your memoir you have incredibly candid and intimate uh, passages that talk about the unity and solidarity among the prisoners you also are very frank about this multiple problems of imprisonment particularly you were you were quite critical of the healthcare system in prison can you share with the listeners uh, a few thoughts about this experience um, that you, know, you were inside for 22 uh, years. And the role also of kind of the, the um, sense of humor had in keeping you all alive, but also the great escape that led to Tim Jenkins, Stephen Lee, and Tony Holiday. Um, no, 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 Tony no? Sorry, Alex Mumbai. Alex Mumbai, Mumbai sorry, um, to make their way out of that hellhole. I must say that imprisonment during the state of emergency in 1960 when my mother was also arrested and we were each so concerned about the other we insisted we be allowed to visit and she was brought to visit me that's when we were in prison together uh, for a time. I must tell you about the inspiration of my mother and father after we were sentenced to life imprisonment, the very next morning, they were together for the first time in many years to visit me. Uh, took up my first visit, which was the visit, which uh, one visit in six months. And my mother tearfully said to me that she felt her life was fulfilled through me. I just got four life sentences. But I knew what she meant. She meant that 
I took it to mean I wasn't just her little boy anymore. I was her equal, a comrade, who had upheld the principles which she and my father tried to imbue in me of humanity, of e equality, of the rights of working people, uh, the relationship between race and class in South Africa. We used to go and deliver coffee and sandwiches to workers on picket lines. Didn't matter what race they were, they were workers. Uh, and in the 1930s and early 40s, there was a huge struggle uh, for pure white trade unionism by Afrikaner nationalists to break the unity of poor whites, mainly Afrikaners, and black people. So this was part also of my growing up, and that's in part of my mother's uh, remark uh, that she felt fulfilled. My father said, you'll never serve your life in here. But he knew that we would have a socialist society and I, before, when I was a schoolboy, and I wouldn't have to worry about going to university. There'd be world socialism, and I'm still waiting, by the way. Prison for white politicals at that time, we weren't just convicted prisoners sentenced to life. A, Calvinists see crime as an evil, a moral evil as well. But every rank of warder over the years, from ordinary guard to top general, would say to me that they didn't like Nelson Mandela, but they could respect him for fighting for his people. But you, Goldberg, we hate you. You've betrayed us. And they treated us as traitors with a harshness that was deliberate and one had to be tough to survive it. Um, I was with Ben Turok, Jocksrach, and Jack Tarshish and I, uh, kept in a block of 30-odd cells alone, allowed to shower, together but not to talk to each other, allowed to exercise together but having to walk apart so we couldn't talk to each other. Uh, it's very painful to have that. Nevertheless, we found ways, you know, you sort of walk and on the turn when your back is to the guard, you talk about the side of your mouth. And when he's on the turn, he answers your remark. Uh, we were able to make solidarity It was an interesting time of togetherness, but I was from the Rivonia trial and had status. I started fighting immediately. Within 10 days of being sentenced, I wrote a letter demanding uh, 10 different things from the right to newspapers, the right to smoke, the right to study, uh, to hot water to wash in shower outside in the winter in Pretoria and the temperature goes down to one, two degrees, no sun because of the high walls, water freezing cold because the prison sergeant didn't want us making the bathroom dirty. And so you learn to shower in cold and not show that you were cold. 
didn't matter about the goosebumps and the cold water. It wasn't a five-star hotel. It wasn't <laughs> a five-star hotel. But in the end, as I say, I wrote this letter. Ten minutes later, I'm called in to see the head of prison security, a colonel, who says he'll do me the favor of uh, tearing up my report letter written to the Minister of Prisons, B.J. Forster, the head of security police, police prisons, and justice. What an irony that was. And uh, because I've talked about Forster being locked up during World War II as a Nazi sympathizer, how dare you say the minister was locked up? And I said, well, he was. It's a fact, and he knows it. And if you read about him, you know what demands they were. And so I'm writing the letter to him because he will understand what I'm talking about. I do know that he saw my letter. It didn't help. It took 16 years to get everything we wanted. And the last item was access to news. No newspapers for 16 years except that which you could smuggle. Or if we were taken off for x-rays and you strip off in a little dressing room. There were magazines lying around that we could steal. Newsweek time, six months old and hot news. Um, so, and new prisoners came in. So we were brought up to date. Gradually, through our solidarity, we were able to demand their respect and get it. They gave us a handbook about the rules we had to follow. And when they didn't follow their rules, we would make a formal complaint. We would build up a dossier for each warder. We never said, oh, a prison guard's a prison guard, they're all the same. We found those who were more sympathetic and those who were less. And it was an important strategic decision that we took to win support. I was taken to hospital once to have my uh, hemorrhoids operated on. And I must say, it was so pretty there. Starched white sheets, a pretty nurse. And, Mr. Goldberg, your breakfast. <laughs> Unlike pr prison, where you got your breakfast in a chipped enamel bowl, standing on the floor, porridge with milk and the bread stuck in the milk, so it was mushy and... Uh, <sighs> Uh, and a guard who was really sympathetic. He brought me sweets, brought me orange juice. He's a nice guy. He didn't like the way we were treated. And always, I can say now, there were always one or two guards who treated us as human beings, usually older men who had worked as artisans in real life and not school to prison training, school to prison where they became petty tyrants with little real authority, but enough authority to make your life miserable if they could. Doctors, oh man, an alcoholic doctor who could get no work except as a district surgeon. Uh, two of us had diarrhea very badly and he said, you're eating too much. I said, you know the diet scale? No. So don't make stupid remarks. 
And then I asked him for a roll of toilet paper, to prescribe toilet paper. Uh, because we had a prison sergeant, the same bad bugger, really, uh, who would dole out a few sheets of paper. You got diarrhea, you need lots of it. And his office was filled with rolls and rolls of the stuff which he wouldn't dish out. So the doctor shouted to me, how dare you ask me for toilet paper? The sergeant will give it to you. I said, the point is he doesn't. And this is a matter of medical hygiene and you need to prescribe it. Of course, the sergeant knows he's deep in it himself now because all of this is tape recorded. Uh, every visit didn't matter with him. And he leans down and says he'll see to it. The doctor then puts me in isolation to make sure I'm not being fed extra food, but as a punishment for having diarrhea. Um, and my friend Dave Evans as well. Eventually they brought in a specialist. My dad was writing from outside long letters to the commissioner of prison saying he demanded that his son be looked after came to a visit and I looked dreadful, lost a lot of weight. Um, in those days you couldn't cut and paste from the internet, you had to write it out from encyclopedias. And eventually uh, the treatment arrived in the form of a really top specialist, uh, gastroenteritis specialist, who discovered we were both seriously ill. Uh, it took months to put us right. But this doctor, who was the son of a former Nationalist Party Minister of, of Health, treated me with such respect and dignity. It was, it was moving to have a professional treat me as a professional should, of what should have been normal. Very moving and almost tearful at the time. In the end, Bram Fisher, who had been our number leader of our defense team, was also sentenced to life imprisonment and died of cancer. He had a prostatectomy. They did a biopsy in the theater. The result was not on the files. It was never properly examined. Mm. And then when he became, he broke his leg and they discovered he had secondary cancers. They didn't know what the origin was which affects the treatment. They should have started treating him six months earlier, and they didn't. And when he broke his leg, and a medical orderly refused to call a doctor because he asked Bram to wiggle his toes and he could, Bram couldn't walk. He was bedridden in terrible agony. This kind of inhumanity, which didn't advance the security of the state. This is the point of the absurdity of it all. I can tell you lots of stories of their absurdity, of our growing a green fig tree. And it was lovely to have fresh fruit, but also our plenary sessions uh, were under the tree. They probably had microphones there, but it didn't matter. Um, sometimes we wanted them to hear what we were saying, uh, our complaints. Uh, and then they chopped our tree down. And they didn't tell us why. Security, they said. So there couldn't have been microphones there. They would have left them. Mm -hmm. 
Eventually, new prisoners came in, Dave Rabkin, Jeremy Cronin, Raymond Suckner, you all know the names. And they told us when we worked out the dates that they chopped it down because the apartheid armies had been driven out of Namibia. And this was a punishment. But they couldn't tell us why they were punishing us because then they'd be giving us news. <laughs> so we didn't know. They just took our tree away. Uh, such craziness. Eventually, I led, initiated and led with lawyers and the support of my comrades a court case. You said not a hotel, not a five-star hotel. That was judge. We took the case of access to news because they were censoring what magazines we were allowed, so there was nothing left to read, even the Reader's Digest, uh, and even a book by Brzezinski, who then, you know, was no progressive in, in world politics of the Cold War years. And uh, the judge says, these are not people living in a hotel where they have all their rights except the key. And the commissioner of prisons, the head of the prison, can do what he likes. He's controlled by the law, but the law gives him the right to do what he likes. Our lawyers appealed. We had to, couldn't leave it at that. And the appeal court, five-judge bench, four judges say, this is a serious case, denying people right to the news because the Prisons Act has says there are two purposes of imprisonment. One is securing the safety of the populace, of the society. The other is to rehabilitate prisoners for their re-entry into the world. Well, if you've served 20 years, and even a lifetime prisoner can be uh, have it commuted, how do you integrate if you don't know what the world's about anymore? Therefore, it's a very grave matter, but we won't order a change. We hope the commissioner will come to a new decision. A fifth judge, took a civil rights position that we had our rights uh, unless they taken away by law and they were not taken away, therefore we should have access. Uh, I'd studied law in prison, I'd studied administrative law and the judge, Chief Justice, having written the main judgment uh, denying us this, uh, remedy for this grave situation then came to see me was the number two head of the prison to tell me we were going to get newspapers, which was the strategy we'd adopted from the beginning. And what's fascinating is that prisoners at that time, at the height of apartheid control and anger and killings, allowed us, had to allow us to take the government to court to argue the case and then argue it on appeal. And you have to explain the politics of this in terms of the Cold War, of apartheid South Africa as an ally of the West against the Soviet Union and its allies. And so better be seen to be democratic in its legal procedures. Uh, it was very useful for us. And the case went round the world, John Dugard, who was a visiting prof at, uh, at Duke University uh, in international law, wrote, a one, wrote wonderful papers on this trial. 
and made it even more famous around the world amongst anti-apartheid activists. And so really the trial was a political matter rather than a judicial matter. Uh, I found that fascinating. We triumphed in the end over them. We did. And when you uh, were released, you joined those anti-apartheid activists you just mentioned and yes. threw yourself into uh, mobilising around the world, in Europe, North America. Um, your thoughts on, the, say, the highs and the lows of the anti-apartheid movement? You know, I, as you said, I, I joined my family in exile in London. We're the biggest anti-apartheid movement and the earliest one founded by Trevor Huddleston, a, a priest, a, uh, one who'd taken vows of poverty and obedience, who really, people like Archbishop Tutu, say he made a tremendous impact. He was a head of a, an Anglican church school and he would doff his hat to African women. Nobody had ever seen a white man do this. He, <laughs> uh, uh, Hugh Masekela was ill. What'll make you well, my boy? I need a trumpet. So he got him a trumpet. And when he found out how talented he was, he got him a trumpet from Louis Armstrong, from Satchmo. Mm. And Jonas Gangwa was also there and was ill. And Jonas Gangwa also wanted something. He actually wanted a saxophone, but he said a trombone. <laughs> and so he became a world-famous jazz trombonist. Mm -hmm. This is the role that Huddleston played. But he also wrote a book in 19... published in 1954, uh, Not For Thy Comfort, a book saying that the Anglican Church, like your Episcopalian Church, um, would have no relevance in South Africa unless it took up the issues of black citizens. A very powerful document. The government made sure that there was pressure on the Anglican Church to remove him, and he became, he was sent to Tanzania, Tanganyika at the time, I think, uh, as bishop for the Indian Ocean. Uh, did a lot of work there, uh, eventually Bishop in Stepney in the East End of London, where he really pushed the founding and development of the anti-apartheid movement. Tremendous worker and influenced people all over the world. So when I got out of prison, I arrive in England and I get caught up straight away. Dennis, you're fresh out of prison. You better speak at our first big public meeting, uh, June 16th, I think it was, at Trafalgar Square, commemorating the Soweto Massacre of 1976 of the youth. And I'm stuck up on a platform. I ne haven't spoken in public. I never was a public speaker. I was nervous. I was, But in prison, I studied and I read and I sought and simplified and I made a speech. The police said there were 5,000 people there, but I counted blocks of 100. There were at least 30,000. It's quite a terrifying experience. 
And I took quite a long time gathering myself, just savouring the moment. And f later friends thought I was going to burst into tears. And then I started speaking and there was dead silence. Uh, hardly a movement. No coughing, no sneezing, no people coming and going. And I realised that I'd learnt a lot in prison, a lot in self-confidence and could hold an audience. But I knew I was riding in on the work done by the anti-apartheid movement to be able to organize such an event. What puzzled me was, in all the daily media in London, this gathering of 30,000 people in the heart of London, Trafalgar Square, there was one report, and that was in the Guardian newspaper. It was a photograph showing Neil Kinnock, leader of the Labour Party opposition, making a speech and a 38-word caption telling what it was about. And the rest of the media just ignored it. And Bram Fisher had said to me, Dennis, you'll get to England one day. You'll see the ruling class dominates and they will ignore you. And of course, we knew that when we set up the barricades. They wouldn't ignore us any longer. We'd all read Jack London's Iron, Under the Iron Heel. <laughs> and uh, indeed, I discovered this was true. Then when there was this people's concert at Clapham Common in South London, uh, Musicians Against Apartheid, before the Wembley concert, uh, some 120,000 marched from the centre of London to Clapham Common, and the gathering had well over 200,000 people present. And the police closed the two underground stations because there was such a crush, people would be forced onto the lines, and then said there were 20,000 people. They lied, always, always. Uh, one talks about the independence of the civil service, you know, the great British lying tradition about the role of the civil service and the non-ideological role of the police. We saw it in practice ourselves. But these were tremendous efforts of organization. And I spoke all over Britain. And then I was sent to France and to Germany, all over Scandinavia regularly, Olive Palmer, had made anti-apartheid activity legitimate in Sweden and all the Scandinavian countries. I got to Finland, the temperature was wind chill factor was 35 below. What a shock to the system for a boy from South Africa. But I toured Canada from coast to coast and in the United States, speaking wherever I could to mobilize. And one of the, th uh, I think, from my knowledge, one of the gains you made there was to convince people to uh, support the liberation struggle materially. Absolutely. And, and so this, this sort of role that you played was very tangible to my mind. Well, in Canada, for example, our chief representative said, Dennis, don't talk about the armed struggle. The Canadians don't like it. And I said, man, I've just done 22 years for it. I can't not talk about it. And so I did. 
And I have to say, Canadian journalists were pretty honest in terms of Goldberg says this full-page interview in Calgary, I think it was, where the editor didn't agree with me. But he quoted what I said and then said, but he thinks we're wrong for these reasons. And you could see the difference in the reportage and opinion, mm. uh, which was important. And I took the issue of the armed struggle head on. Eventually had a meeting with the head of the Africa desk of the Canadian Foreign Ministry to talk about the fact that they're not supporting our armed struggle and that the Canadian Defence and Aid Fund wouldn't support people who were family or people who'd been arrested for armed struggle. And I spoke to him and spoke to the uh, Defence and Aid Fund as well and, and a conf big conference. I convinced the Defence and Aid Fund that they need to change their opinion. Uh, they said later, Dennis convinced us. He produced an argument which showed that it was necessary. And then spoke to the foreign ministry guy. And six months later, they produced a million dollars of support mm. for the anti-apartheid work not only to the Defence and Aid Fund, to others, and not directly to the ANC. So I was tremendously proud of that kind of thing. In Greece, I persuaded Papandreou's government to uh, at least open an office for an ANC representative with full diplomatic privileges. They would pay for everything. It took six months. It was remarkably quick. So I felt that I was doing something useful around the world. And I remember in the early 1990s, perhaps uh, 1993 or thereabouts, when you spoke in New Haven, Connecticut, at that time, I think your emphasis has shifted towards mobilizing for the upcoming election of 1994. And it was really an exciting time, uh, even for young people like me who had just really in the past few years gotten uh, active in South African affairs. Now it's 20 years on. Uh, democracy has consolidated in South Africa. There's elections coming up in just a couple of weeks. Um, can you share with us your, your thoughts on this, on these first two decades of freedom and, and what may be ahead following the elections for South Africa? It's interesting you remember that tour because I haven't been here in the States since 93, that tour. And I was sent by the Treasurer General to raise funds for voter education. Uh, it needed a separate effort. And uh, uh, it was fairly successful. We couldn't appeal just for the ANC. It had to be for voter education in general. People had never voted. How, what does it mean to vote? What's the significance of it? And so the idea of upcoming elections was very exciting. In fact, I'd asked to return home to take part in the election campaign, and I was ordered to stay. And being disciplined, I stayed. It would have been so exciting being back home. Uh, but I traveled the States, and as you say, we had our first free election. I have to tell you, in all honesty, I don't believe that the election result 
was a mathematically correct result. The Encarta Freedom Party had refused to take part in the election campaign. They said it was biased against them and at the last minute agreed. In fact, I had a discussion with one of the, uh, what do you call these people, uh, who were involved in the mediation process, mm -hmm. a Latin American guy, and told him, uh, gave him an analysis of the situation. His report says that I gave him the key to it, uh, to his report about the approach that should be adopted. And of course there were others, but Butelezi, Chief Butelezi, accepted the ideas. And at the last minute, a little piece was stuck onto the millions of ballot papers to show, show their party was involved. And, uh, but in KwaZulu-Natal, the home of the Encarta movement, when it came to counting the votes, there were huge ballot boxes filled with papers that had never been taken out of their wrappers. Mm. It was easy to count, there were a thousand in a pack, but never been filled in, never, it was just a, and in the end, to avoid a civil war amongst Encarta and ANC people, I believe there was an agreement about how many seats Encarta would get. And you must know that in the run-up to the election, there'd been tremendous violence and killings by Encarta of ANC people, and a funeral held, and more people would be killed. It was a dreadful time, and they were backed by the apartheid forces. And later we know that the arms were supplied by the South African military to Encarta. So, yes, we had free and fair elections, and I voted in London at South Africa House. It was a lovely moment, I must say. The only time I'd voted before was in the referendum against the Republic. Not because I wanted my Queen to be there, <laughs> but because it would be an apartheid Republic, mm -hmm. uh, specifically so. Yeah. Uh, now I could vote freely for the party of my choice and for a progressive development in South Africa. Great moment. I was also able to to address a hustings of South African exiles at South Africa House and had a lovely time mocking the others for, for their support of apartheid and so on. Um, great time. Now, 20 years on, as you know, Nelson Mandela became the president. And in that four years between his release and him becoming president, Sadly, the world's media talks about our bloodless revolution. It's just that 10,000 people were murdered by the apartheid state and its allies. But we live in a racist world where black people die in those numbers. They're just a number, they're not people, their blood doesn't count. One or two whites were killed in uh, actions that we as a movement condemned immediately through Tambo. No, Tambo had already passed away, so uh, as a movement condemned them. Uh, but when a white was killed, everybody knew the name, the children, the grandparents. It was an astonishing show of continuing racism. And I want people to understand that that peaceful transition 
came about because of the restraint of the ANC. Chris Harney was murdered uh, by right-wing murderers trying to derail everything, compelled the apartheid government to set a date for the election, couldn't delay any longer. Nelson Mandela appealed to our people as a whole, stay indoors, don't respond with violence. We can't win a military battle, we can win an election kind of approach. And then we will deal with the issues as they arise. The restraint of the oppressed in South Africa is utterly remarkable. The Freedom Charter is fulfilled in our constitution. South Africa belongs to all who live in it. And what an act of generosity that the two-thirds majority of the most deeply oppressed African people say to whites and other minorities, you have a place here, provided you accept us as equals. That's such an act of generosity, of humanity, um, that the ANC doesn't get credit for, and that, that upsets me greatly. It's all due to Nelson Mandela with his sense of reconciliation. He was fulfilling the policies. Uh, our encounter with Cesar Armed Struggle Manifesto said, we will take power eventually, better to negotiate the transfer of power. And when you're ready to talk, we will talk. It took 30 years, but we held to the principle of talks. So, where have we got to now? We're having, I think, our fifth national elections, better organized than any before. They've steadily improved. And I think disillusionment has crept in, despite the tremendous amount that's done, have been done. The media, day after day, say nothing has changed for the better, but for the worst. And it can't be, because half our kids never went to school in the past. Now 90% go to school. Some of the schools are terrible, I have to tell you. Some of the teachers are still badly trained from Bantu education apartheid days. But go onto any university campus and they see the black faces there. The kids are getting there. And they graduate and the doctorates and the pundits on television are no longer just white experts. They're people who talk sense who come out of the masses of the people. For me, this is tremendously important. It's about dignity and to quote Cathrada, he says that uh, we can count the progress in terms of the three million houses and how many million people have fresh water, about 12 million who never had it before, and the eight or 10 million who have safe sanitation, even if not waterborne. But most important is dignity, that people are citizens. They take part in elections. They shape policy. They can sit in parliament which they were never allowed to do before. That's the real gain. The rest is a matter of time and progress. And I would add a gloss to his statement. Damn it, history just proceeds day after day. And it's only when you look back over a period that you see what progress you've made. And so where have we got to? 
Nelson Mandela, whom I admire tremendously, uh, he seemed to find the right expression always. Uh, when he was released, somebody said to him, it's in his autobiography, uh, now you're free. And he said, no, we are free to become free. We have to build our freedom for all. Later, he says, to be free, it is not enough to cast off your chains. You must so live your life that you respect and advance the freedom of others. This is Ubuntu. This is, we live in society. We live through others. And finally, his American author, a ghost writer, Richard Stengel, clearly quotes Robert Frost, I've got miles to go before I sleep, miles to go before I sleep. Nelson Mandela says, I've climbed a mountain and I look back to see how far we've come from total oppression to him being president. And then goes on uh, to say he's discovered in a long life that when you've climbed a mountain, a mountain range, and you get to the top, and clearly it's a metaphor for social mountains, social problems, social uh, struggles. When you've climbed the mountain, you see there are more mountains to climb. And I would add again, there will always be mountains to climb. And it's for the next succeeding generations to do it. And we have a flourishing democracy in which the ruling party, having been the ruling party for 20 years, is under attack day after day, in Parliament, in the streets. And I'm excited by this. Sometimes it's not nice to see my party attacked in this way. But the issue is democracy. And so far, our constitutional court, when it's ruled against the government, the government has obeyed. I hope it will in future. I'm not sure it will, and we will have a constitutional crisis. Uh, it's about corruption. It's about corruption in high places. The court's still needing to rule on certain issues. Uh, it's very important that democracy is such a tender little flower. It needs to be cosseted, and uh, we need to do that, and I hope we do. Dennis Goldberg, thank you so very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you for having me here. Africa, past and present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.